I'd like to welcome Slavoj Žižek. Mm. Hope this will work. Uh, thank you very much. I'm honored to be here, and I also prefer the situation today where there is at least a hope that we will do a chance that we will do more theory and so on. But uh, I don't want to disappoint you too much because I was nonetheless told that like the public is not only philosophers. So what I will try to do is simply prolong the reflections of, of the last days on <coughs> the end of the world and so on, which means our ideological constellation today. Where are we moving? What does this mean? Well, my first association when you say the end of the world, it is culturally for me, is does any of you know this quite terrifying song? But I think it's if there ever was a symptom of where we are today, this is it. This mega, mega hit Gangnam Style, which started in South Korea, then all around the world. I was told that already in the United States, it's already on the second place and so on. What interests me here is uh, how it functions. My small son who listened to it, draw my attention to it that, you know, if you play it on YouTube, you have how many hits and then you have positive, negative opinions. That negative opinions are much larger. It's like... As my son told me, you're a big guy. If you look at Justin Bieber, you find the same, like five to one. But nonetheless, people remain stuck onto it. They listen to it. And so I even then found a text on this hit, Gangnam Style, where they say that's how it effectively functions. It's not that you like it, but practically everyone tells me the same. When you first hear it, you find it disgusting. But in a weird way, pleasurably disgusting. You become haunted by it. You know, it's like when something is so disgusting that fascinates you and you say, oh, it's horrible. Let's take a look again at it, how horrible it is. And then slowly my son, who is 11 now, ends up listening at least 50 times per day <laughs> to it. Second thing, uh, although it is... Uh, quasi-religious experience, like in Korea, a friend sent me some video clips. This stupid song was performed uh, at a stadium with over 100,000 people, all in a trance and so on. What is so interesting is how critics, false, I claim, fake leftist critics, try to convince us that it's irony, it's satirical, you shouldn't take it seriously, no. It's really making fun of that uh, 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 for young upper-class kids, uh, part of uh, Seoul, Gangnam, and all the irony there, and so on. But I claim precisely this is what makes the song an example of ideology. How, as I always repeat, how cynicism functions today. I believe in it, it's all the time fun, making fun of itself, but the magic is that it functions. You see my point? I'm not claiming there is just the stupid song with this rave dance, repetitive, almost military style. The crowd follows this quasi-religious rave experience. It's not just this. 
that makes it ideology. It's precisely this more of making fun of yourself, ironic distance, and so on and so on. It's the same as my old thesis. Did we use it, Matthew, in some of the films? I'm not sure. Or that stupid movie, uh, Kung Fu Panda, where I claim it's exemplary of ideology today. Why? Because I had the misfortune of seeing it four or five times with the same above-mentioned son, where uh, for, uh, uh, like, on the one hand, the movie mobilizes all this orientalist mythology, you know, uh, 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 kung fu, destiny, warrior, chosen, whatever, the one. And at the same time, it makes fun of its own ideology all the time. It, in kind of a, a commonsensical mocking of all the Buddhist or whatever orientalist spiritual wisdoms. But again, you shouldn't miss the point, which is that in spite of, or I would rather have said precisely because of, all this self-mocking, it works in the sense that far from undermining all this orientalist uh, mythology, in a strange way, making fun of it makes this ideology viable. It is as if the procedure since I am, I hope, here with people who like at least some movies, films, uh, so it's something that was done in an intelligent way, I claim, with, uh, in, I don't like too much the film, but this aspect I like. Lars von Trier, I hope you saw it, Breaking the Waves. Uh, he, Lars von Trier himself, has a wonderful explanation where he says the story in itself, he says, is ridiculously melodramatic. And if the form of the film were to fit, to be adequate to the ridiculous melodramatic style of the narrative, it would have been inedible, how do you call it, ridiculous. So he says, that's why he opted, you may remember it if you saw the film, for this uh, quasi-documentary handheld camera, shortcuts, and so on, a style which is totally out of sync with the mega-romantic narrative. He said, very nicely, that this quasi-documentary style functions like some kind of a screen which softens and makes palpable so that you can take so that you can take seriously the story. The reason I like this is that what von Trier does there is the exact opposite of the standard melodramatic procedure where the style is often more pathetic, emotional than the content. I mean, all good analysts know this, how often even something that, at least in classical melodramas, that you cannot directly depict at a narrative level, you signal it through the over-pathetic character of the style. Here it's the exact opposite. It's the story which is ridiculously pathetic. You need this filter, as it were, distantiating filter to make the story palpable. And I claim, again, the same goes for this uh, Gangnam style. First, and I think... I'm not, uh, I mean it quite seriously. Uh, when I say that this is the way, the mode of today's spiritual experience, if you, if you want, I'm not making fun of it. 
my claim is not it's a pseudo-spiritual experience. Of course, I find it disgusting, but uh, my thesis, underlying thesis, is much more radical. It's uh, that uh, what if a spiritual experience itself can be disgusting, even if it's authentic? I mean, why do we automatically associate inner spiritual experience with something, I don't know, uh, morally elevating and so on and so on? My idea was always, for example, when I read, uh, uh, there are horrible reading, of course, Nazi or other memoirs, what if there, why automatically if someone does something horrible in real life, organize murder, torture, and so on, why do we automatically assume that he must be somehow non-authentic, hypocritical in his inner life? This is, I know, very sad news, pessimist news, but I'm more and more convinced of it. Now, let me present you as part of this line of thought another experience which brought me a lot of hatred in my own country. Already, I developed this in some of my books where I proposed the line of, like, no ethnic cleansing without poetry. Literally. You know why I took this path? Because I got a little bit tired with this eternal motive which you find from Levinas to Adorno, all of them, or even many general, generally people of culture, of blaming us philosophers. You know, the idea is political totalitarianism. For example, Emmanuel Levinas says this clearly. Political totalitarianism is grounded in philosophical notion of totality. You think you have access to total, absolute knowledge, you know totality, and this justifies you then to brutally impose your vision on reality. Uh, I claim, okay, maybe, although I doubt it deeply, deeply, because if you look closely, now at a naive empirical level even, if you look closely at most of, uh, not even most of actual so-called totalitarianisms, you will see that the spontaneous ideology of totalitarianism is always historicist relativism, you know. For example, if there was someone who was not philosophically totalitarian, it's Adolf Hitler. Read Mein Kampf. It's a horrible book, pretty boring, but it's worth reading. Because you see that his attitude was not man master of uni universe. His, uh, his attitude was man is just a tiny dust of nature. We are totally exposed to nature. We will perish, disappear, and so on. It's total historicist relativism, and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is then, uh, why uh, even I had some problems with, uh, even with... <coughs> Theorists, theorists of deconstruction who also claim that it's kind of a metaphysics of identity sticking to absolute values again in some way grounds totalitarianism and so on. Now, look, for example, at the time of the French Revolution. And you will see that the defenders of ancien regime were historicists. They claim we have, you know, their line was the one of, how is he called, the great critic of French Revolution, Edmund B Burke, or who? 
Burke, yeah, yeah. You know, the idea is we all live within a certain particular tradition which is ultimately contingent, but the worst thing we can do is to just uh, relativize this tradition which is contingent and impose some eternal values and so on. It was the revolutionaries who were much more metaphysical in the sense that no, there are natural rights of men. If anything, the conflict between Burke and partisans of French Revolution was a conflict between a historicist and kind of absolutist, no eternal values, natural rights, and so on. Here, I think, it's a nice example of how precisely the reference to an absolute can open up the space of freedom. But let me go on with this idea of ethnic cleansing and so on. Let me be serious now. I'm not crazy. Don't be afraid. I mean, there are poets who really are poets. They are absolute. I mean, but not so many as people think. Like, I don't know, in the 20th century, if you mention, I don't know, Paul Celan or whatever. But did you notice, nonetheless, how many of undoubtedly great Modernist poets were pretty close to fascism or whatever. Eliot, what is my trauma here? This one. Uh, if you, it's very simple uh, line of thought. If you, we are basically half decent people. As I already developed it, I think, the first evening there. And it's difficult for us to kill someone and so on. So you need some kind of absolute mythic, poetic, religious vision, again, to function as a, as a screen, to make it possible. Here I agree, partially, not totally. I'm not part of that today's uh, materialism of, of, of Harris and Hitchens and so on. But uh, I basically agree with what uh, Steven Weinberg, I think, said somewhere, that without religion... Bad people would be doing bad things and good people good things. You need something like religion to make good people do bad things. I can tell you that this is what happened in my own country, for example. You know the story, ex-Yugoslavia, ethnic cleansing, and so on. I think it's not an accident, a chance, that the leader of Bosnian Serbs is Radvan Karadzic, a poet. And I'm not blaming just the Serbs. If you look at other ex-Yugoslav republics, every nation had its own Karadzic. You need this type of, a, of, a vision, of a vision to enable you to do the horrors. What do I mean by this? It's interesting to read, I always quoted what Heinrich Himmler, you know, the SS boss, uh, he confronted this problem. Like, uh, he knew very well, it's interesting to read him, he knew very well that SS officers and soldiers were obliged to do horrible things while doing, uh, while organizing Holocaust, uh, 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 bringing together all the Jews, you had to beat children, women, and so on, and so on. And his problem was how to, how to enable German soldiers or SS, the elite to, soldiers, to do this without, as he himself put it, Himmler, without becoming beasts like 
beasts in the sense of simply enjoying getting involved in what they are doing. You maybe know what his solution was, Bhagavad Gita, Oriental Wisdom. Himmler always had in his pocket a, a special leather-bound version of Bhagavad Gita. Of course, his focus was, you must know, Bhagavad Gita, that famous encounter between Arjuna, the warrior, and God, Krishna, no? In, uh, uh, just before the big battle, Arjuna is on the battlefield with tens of thousands of soldiers opposing army and has doubts. My God, do I have the right to order the attack? Thousands will die and so on, all the suffering. And then God basically gives him a nice lesson of this famous act without being fully involved. No? And of this, what we in the West identify, that's another point, does, does it really hold or not as uh, oriental ontology. He says, but material reality are just appearances. It thinks, grow, disintegrate, disappear. The true reality is the reality of the, your eternal self, Atman, which is eternal. So the logical conclusion, don't worry. Do all the killing and so on. What you can destroy, it's already in itself negligible, deserves to perish, and so on and so on. And precisely, again, uh, don't get involved. And it's really shocking how, if you look, for example, I made the test and looked also at Rwanda. Of course, there is a poet there who for 10 years was laying the ground, the foundation, for, uh, for uh, Tutsis killing the Hutus and so on and so on. Uh, I'm not far from condemning poetry. I think that precisely authentic poetry is the best medicine against this for undermining national myths and so on and so on. But again, I think that precisely, uh, uh, how should I put it? Uh, I don't believe in cynicism in the sense of that people can be totally cynical. I claim that nobody can be totally cynical. Each of us has his or her or their own small island of authenticity, as it were, you know. And uh, here, again, poetry, uh, poetry is needed. You know where poetry enters? <coughs> Ideological poetry, of course. Uh, the most terrifying trick of this poetic justification of violence, it's a very specific one. Hitler, sorry, Himmler also knew it. It's, they admit, for example, let's go back to that situation that I evoked the first evening here, using you, Matthew, I think, as the example. Let's say I am ordered to kill you. Okay, unfortunately, I'm not perfect. I will have some problems, no? Uh, but then the, the trick is, a good totalitarian propaganda, not propaganda, mythology, admits this trouble of mine. Of course, we have, most of us at least, some basic decency. It's disgusting, difficult for us simply to approach another guy, pick out his eyes, cut off his testicles, whatever. But then, you know what does it do, authentic uh, totalitarian poetry? It, uh, it redefines your very problem with doing this as an as a ethical problem temptation in the sense of as Himmler said 
most of the people can do great things for their country, even sacrifice their lives. A true hero is the one who is ready to lose his soul for the country, to, to do horrible things for his fatherland. So, you know, like, if I have, sorry, don't take it personally, it's just history. <laughs> if I have to torture and kill you, the trick would have been to say, of course, you feel horrible. But the true greatness is to, is to elevate yourself about this temptation of ordinary humanity. Precisely what you, in your everyday awareness, experience as ethically problematic is the weakness. A true hero, a true ethical greatness is when, for a higher cause, you are ready to act beyond good and evil, and so on and so on. And here, you need some poetic vision. I cannot call it otherwise. Vision of, I don't know, national destiny, religion, call it whatever you want to make them, uh, to make them uh, do that. Okay, so again, this would be my first pessimist uh, lesson of how, and at the end I will come to Buddhism again, uh, which I already mentioned the first thing precisely because I think that here, and I spoke with many Buddhists, and even mostly they agreed that here there is a problem in Buddhism, namely that uh, the really difficult thing for us to admit is that there is a, uh, there is no necessary inner link between ordinary goodness towards others, doing kind things, and so on, and let's call it naively authentic, authentic spiritual experience. Maybe you know the story, which I like to repeat. I'm sorry if you know it. Uh, I wrote about it long ago, 20 years ago, in a book. Uh, a book, uh, I, I mean, I wrote about a book which I like very much by Aldous Huxley. Maybe you know it, The Grey Eminence, Leminon's Greece. It's a biography of Father Joseph, Père Joseph, who was a priest and the right hand of Cardinal Richelieu, the de facto ruler of France during the Thirty Years' War uh, in the early uh, uh, 17th century. Uh, and uh, you know what is so crazy about this guy? If there ever was an evil politician, it's Father Joseph. To cut a long story short, if we engage in some mythical genealogy and try to guess uh, What's the origin of Hitler, of World War II? It's Father Joseph. You know why? This was the battle between Catholics and Protestants for Europe. But Cardinal Richelieu had no illusions. He knew it's not really about that. It is about guaranteeing central, about establishing central role of France in European politics. And the way to do it is to prevent German unification. And so, Father Joseph, who executed this plan, did something totally unprincipled. He, although this was officially a war of Catholics against Protestants, he made a pact with Swedish Protestants against uh, Austrian Catholics, just to keep Germany uh, divided. And this is the logic I was referring to. Because Germany was divided, because Germany constituted itself as a nation state too late, 
everybody knows that this delay cost First World War and then it's the ultimate cost and then of Second World War. But what I like to say is that, okay, here we have a guy who was at this level really, really evil, organizing murders, extortions, torture, name it. Now comes the horrible thing. At the same time, this guy wrote, was in a permanent communication, exchanging letters with some uh, uh, nunnery, women's convent, how do you call it? And, and uh, he wrote them the most authentic, beautiful, uh, mystical reflections. At the top level, name it, like who are the big hits, St. Teresa or John of the Cross, it's at that level. It's absolutely authentic spirituality. And that's what, it's not a really great book, but this is the nice point. They, this is what bothers so much Aldous Huxley. How can a guy who is doing all this, at the same time, how can he write something that you cannot but say, if you're honest, my God, this is the pearl, the thing itself. This is it. And we can go on here, like uh, uh, Heinrich Heydrich. You know, we are back to Himmler. His second man who organized the Wannsee Conference Holocaust. I read, I was quite traumatized. I read in a biography of, no biography, sorry, history of SS that Heydrich was, of course, German elite, relatively educated, uh, Privately, he played very well violin, and in the evenings, he used to gather with his SS friends, and they have some kind of amateur-constituted string quartet, and they like to play what is, my God, unfortunately, I must tell you, it's generally admitted one of the top achievements of Western music, late Beethoven's string quartets. Now, I found this to be some kind of let me call it ontological scandal, you know. Like, how is this possible? This is not just that the, not even scum, a totally evil man like Heydrich, you know. Again, the one who organized planned Holocaust can maybe authentically enjoy, appreciate such beautiful music. Uh, because here I want to resist the temptation which... Huxley was not able to resist. His solution is, this only can mean that Christian or Catholic spirituality is not authentic. He didn't want to admit that you can have it both together. So this is why, as you maybe know, he moved towards the Far East. No? Meditation, Buddhism, and so on, thinking that his idea was this one, that Christianity is too much focused on suffering of following the path of Christ, identifying with suffering, that this makes it potentially pathological. While this more peaceful, uh, withdrawn, oriental spiritual attitude can do the job better. We, here, I have another bad news for you. I always like to mention this book. I hope some of you know it. Uh, Brian Victoria, who is himself a uh, Zen Buddhist monk, you really should read this book. It's called Zen at War. It's a, you can find it, I think it's reprinted all the time. It's widely uh, uh, debated in Zen, in generally Buddhist circles. It's not a big theoretical book. It does something very modest. It looks in detail on how the Japanese Zen community, 
they were relatively strong, I think, around 10 million more, related to Japanese imperial war conquest, uh, first war with China, then World War II in, th in the 1930s and 40s. And the result is pretty depressive. Not only they tolerated it, but apart from literally five or ten dissidents, they unanimously supported the war, not even this, but even provided tools like advices to make war more efficient. For example, now I will be really evil, I'm sorry if you already know the story. Do you remember, if you are old enough, some of you are most happy for you not, uh, in the old hippie times, he was very popular. Who is he? Daisetsu Teitaro Suzuki, D.T. Suzuki, you know, the great Zen popularizer. What people tend to forget, but he was honest enough to admit this, he never denied it, that in the 1930s and 40s, early 40s, he was totally supporting Japanese military imperial politics. And not only this, but even uh, gave active advices about how to render it more efficient. For example, I quote this, I forgot which one, in two, three of my books, this wonderful passage from Suzuki, where he says, again, it's the same problem as I mentioned before, like imagine yourself in battle. You confront your enemy, you see him, and of course, you cannot avoid a minimum of, let's call it personalization, like you are, sorry Matthew, it's always you whom I think, when I think, let's kill a person, I think about you, don't ask me why, but like, you know, you are a human being, you have a child, all these problems. Eh, Suzuki has an answer here, it's pretty horrifying. He says, these problems remain as long as we remain stuck into this, what Buddhism describes as this samsara, the will of desire, false identity, when we uh, perceive falsely ourselves as agent with a substantial self, you know, when we don't fully assume this logic of in Indian anatman, there is no self, just void, and so on. He says that, let's say I have a knife, I want to stab you. If I'm still caught in the world of illusion, I will find it problematic. Like, my God, I am stabbing you. What right do I have to do it? But, Suzuki says, imagine that I go through Buddhist enlightenment. Then I really assume that I have no self. I'm just a kind of totally impassive, transparent observer. And the world also, reality, loses its, its substantial weight and becomes just a, a, a dance of phenomena popping up here, disappearing there. And then he says, if you really assume this existential experience, then it becomes much easier. He, Suzuki, provides a wonderful description. He says, it's no longer me deciding to stab you. It is, as he says, a knife in my hand as part of a cosmic dance is moving in space, and as part of the same dance Matt, sorry, you are still, your body hits my knife and I'm for nothing in it, you know. I'm just this totally enlightened observer and so on and so on. Now, let's avoid a misunderstanding here. I'm not saying, I have immense respect for Buddhism. I'm not saying, hoo-hoo, Buddhism, theory of Japanese <laughs> militarism or whatever then. I'm saying, and 
Suzuki, after the war, was heroic enough to admit it. What I'm saying is that, uh, is that uh, it doesn't matter, it's neutral. Suzuki says this wonderfully. In a, people just ignored this when they bought this bullshit, you know. Buddhism, holistic, organic, you are gentle with nature. No, he says, Buddhism is a technique of meditation. You can be a fascist, a torturer, a democrat, a liberal, whatever, communist, it doesn't matter. He, I found this really radical and great. This is a very traumatic thing to do. He admitted, accepted this irreducible gap. You can have your inner authentic inner experience, it absolutely doesn't guarantee that you will not be doing horrible things in reality. In some conditions, as Suzuki admits it, it may even make it easier. Because again, the moment you don't perceive yourself as agent, you are no longer fully, uh, fully identified uh, with it and so on and so on. Uh, so here I have a more general problem about where we are today. Here I have a problem with my personal friend, but we have some theoretical conflicts, Judith Butler. I don't know if I mentioned this. I appreciate her very much, but not the usual books, which are more her here. For example, the books that I like by her is her first book, Subjects of Desire which is, I think, a very good reading of Hegel. That's what I appreciate in her. She's really deep in her heart a Hegelian. And once she told me, Slavo, you must really hate me, I said, no, you may be evil, but you like Hegel. Somebody who wrote such a book on Hegel cannot be totally evil. <laughs> then we embraced, yeah, yeah, we were friends. No. Uh, and the other book, The Psychic Life of Power. These are, I think, her best works, not the big official stuff. My problem with her is this one. Her general space, and I don't care here if she really meant it like that. I'm speaking about how she perceived. Is that the enemy, quote marks, the opponent, is this uh, patriarchal identity, whatever. And then what she's fighting for is to undermine patriarchal identity, essentialism, whatever you want, and to assert that even our most intimate sexual identity is just a, a result of, you know the story, of this uh, 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 symbolic performative rituals which also allow then a space of maneuver when you ironically repeat rituals in a displaced way, you gain a distance, you can undermine them a little bit. My problem here is what? It's not that I'm defending patriarchy identity or what. It's okay, nice, but what is she describing? I claim she's simply describing the predominant ideology today. I don't think our societies today still require this standard patriarchal uh, identity attitude. You know, like each of us has an eternal essential nature or whatever and so on, what she is attacking all the time. I think that precisely what is predominant ideology telling us? It's what I like to call this enlightened Western Buddhism, you know. Society is no longer telling us, sacrifice yourself for a higher cause or what. Society is telling us something like 
be truly yourself, be authentic, experiment, create yourself. Don't get stuck in one identity. Experiment, uh, reconstruct yourself all the time. And again, all this is spiced with some kind of spontaneous uh, pseudo-Buddhism, where the idea is don't get too attached to it, you know. Don't assume fully any identity. Always play, dance, then you get all this new age bullshit. Remember, things are not really serious, it's a cosmic dance or whatever you want, and so on and so on. So again, uh, uh, let me go now back. This is the reason I began with uh, Gangnam Style. Because I think that uh, this type of cynical working, where you do something, but you think it redeems you if you do it with irony, with distance. I don't accept this. I claim that, again, as I already said, that precisely ironic distance helps you to swallow it. I mean, this is also part of my personal experience, where I remember when I was young, living in a, a socialist country, uh, you know, there was one wonderful rumor, which is, of course, wrong for theoretical reasons. But there is a moment of truth in it. All the time there was a rumor, and then I heard from friends that there was the same rumor in Soviet Union and so on, that, you know, we lived for political jokes. This was the big thing there. And I think if you ask me seriously, I mean it, that uh, the greatest spiritual loss of the fall of communism was the loss of good political jokes. They simply disappeared. They were absolutely sublime, intelligent, wonderful. Even this, I, I will not bore them with uh, the, those jokes, but even this, what Freud's claim, Freud claims that it's a specificity of Central Europe, this wonderful two-level jokes, you know? A joke is told, you think that's it, but then there is another twist. <coughs> so uh, the rumor was that there is somewhere in the secret police or central committee of the party a special secret department where they produce jokes <laughs> against themselves to keep people satisfied. The idea was if you provide these, you know, jokes making, uh, 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 making people, uh, uh, this, you know, it doesn't cost anything. You give people this false relaxation, freedom, and so on and so on. I don't think this works for a very simple theoretical reason. Because you know how jokes function. Jokes are, by definition, they're a very mysterious thing. They never have an author. Like, you know, how do you tell a joke? You tell it always by, oh, do you know the joke? I heard the joke. Some, something in the functioning of a joke prohibits, prevents you to say, now an idea came me, I just invented a joke. It should be some anonymous other, anonymous. You're always, uh, you always just telling jokes. So again, I think um, this is wrong, but again, even if it's spontaneous, I think jokes definitely played this role. This role of uh, making it viable, tolerable for you to live in such a society. I'm so attached to this because, you know, in the last years under communism, when communists were 
able to read the writing on the wall that <laughs> their time is over, to enhance their popularity. Some communist politicians, it was madness, wonderful, started themselves to tell jokes about themselves. I mean, even Reagan, Reagan, Ronald Reagan came close to it, but didn't go to the end in this, I think. I remember a Croat politician visited, it was late 70s, visited Rome, and then come back, and when people expected this kind of official report on ooh, friendship between Yugoslav and Italian people, whatever, he started to tell jokes against himself, you know, which were not very funny, but pretty nice. Like, he made fun of himself as stupid and non-educated, you know. The idea was, for example, it plays on, you know this, in Europe at least, ambiguity of the word chapel. Chapel can mean the church, chapel, and also we call it in Italian, cappella, you know, the small band which plays in cafeterias, in restaurants, no? And the guy said, you know, I got lost in Rome. Uh, I was told that I should go and see, you know, Michelangelo, Vatican, Sistine Chapel. And I look in all cafeterias and nowhere was Sistine Chapel playing. And then it goes on like, I was then told to go to see Marriage of Figaro. I looked, checked all the churches, nowhere was the marriage of Figaro announced. And then it goes on, you know the German city, Baden-Baden, no? This is a standard communist joke, that our politician travels on a train through Germany and says, oh, what city is this? And the guy tells him, Baden-Baden. And he says, I'm not an idiot, you don't have to tell me two times or whatever. And so, But again, uh, this is my link with Kung Fu Panda, how you shouldn't be deluded here. This very distance makes it, uh, uh, makes it viable. Uh, so, okay, back to Gangnam style, this stupid rhythm, and at the same time, with this uh, stupid rhythm, nonetheless, something like, let's call it uh, a religious experience. Religious experience kept at a distance but precisely sustained through this uh, distance. Uh, if we pursue this line of thought, I would like to propose when people ask me, can you think about an authentic religious film of Hollywood? I have an answer. It's not uh, uh, Mel Gibson's uh, passion, which is, I think, as everyone knows, the greatest triumph of sadomaso uh, uh, gay orientation in Hollywood, you know, you have male naked body tortured for two hours, what more do you want? It's, uh, it's, did you see it? I really think it's, again, I mean it seriously, but precisely critically towards spiritual experience. Did you see Project X? It was half a year ago, a year ago, a, a, a modest film about, uh, in a small American town, a group of three, uh, uh, three nerds, non-popular guys, who decide to organize a party. Because father and mother are going somewhere for the weekend. And father gives to the son specific instructions. Don't touch the car, don't enter that room, only five friends, and so on. What happened is that rumor starts to circulate, and at the end, uh, 
uh, a couple of thousands of people gather, the house is burned down, the car is ruined, everything, and so on and so on. And it obviously, at a certain point, I didn't want to bore you today, but I think you can even exactly locate it where you enter the sacred dimension. It becomes a sacred event. Uh, so what I'm simply claiming is that with all Hollywood commercialism and so on, there is more of an authentic sacred dimension in this film than in most of the official religion. That's what I'm claiming. We absolutely have no right to dismiss it as just manipulate or whatever you want, consumerist manipulation and so on and so on. There is another wonderful detail about this film, if you saw it. At the very end, father returns home, is of course shocked, and says to his son, okay, I, you will have to work for it, to pay for it, but I must admit something, I didn't expect you are strong enough to do something like this, and so on and so on. And this is crucial. This is how, uh, uh, how uh, uh, Lacan explains the role of the father. Precisely of the traditional patriarchal father. He says, I quote, I think it's from somewhere in Seminary 11, uh, Beyond the mother stands out the image of a father who would turn a blind eye to desires. This marks the true function of the father, which is fundamentally to unite and not to oppose a desire to the law. You know where I got the same idea, although it's a feminine figure? I read in a book on Catherine the Great that one of her elder uh, the Russian empress. One of her elder servants told her, do you know that your other servants are behind your back stealing uh, expensive wines and expensive food uh, from your reserves? And he said, I know this, but this is how I keep them satisfied. But, you know, this is Lacan's idea that the, uh, the funk, you know how you relate to a pa traditional paternal authority? It's always a minimally naive authority. Father up there prohibit things, but then you find the blind spots where you are, as it were, not on father's, father's radar or whatever, and you can there transgress things and so on. But for Lacan, this precisely is the function of paternal authority. So precisely, it's never a total authority. It precisely doesn't see everything and allows for these islands of transgression where you can enjoy and so on and so on. In this sense, if some of you are philosophers, Lacan had a good critical point about critical point about Hegel, you know, the famous Hegelian dialectics of master and servant, where Hegel's idea is the master enjoys, the servant works for the master's enjoyment. Lacan's point is not the opposite one. The only one who can, who can enjoy a little bit is the servant with this small islands where he is out of the father's view. And of course, okay, we can go on here because uh, Lacan's point is precisely that when father 
no longer plays this role of an authority which prohibits, but nonetheless, you know, leaves you open space for small transgressions and so on, then you get something much more horrible. You get the postmodern permissive father who no longer prohibits its enjoyment, but it's actually imposing it on you. You know, the style of sex is healthy, did you do it, blah, 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 which is, I think, something much more terrifying. It's the way to render you impotent. Literally, this is clinically true, psychoanalytic friends are telling me. The problem is not the father who is moderately oppressive. That's wonderful. A moderately oppressive father gives you the space to resist it is. The problem is, and my God, I will now do something obscene. I will admit that I had this experience with my father. The problem, when I returned from high school, home father told me, where are the girls? Are you a man? Did you do it? Do and then he said, my father, the most horrible thing, is it that you cannot do it? Do you need my advice or what? Absolute nightmare or whatever. Okay, this incidentally is also why I'm horrified by today's attitude towards uh, sex and other pleasures, which is more and more not what I'm tempted to call an authentic consumerism, which would be smoke, take drugs, orgies to the end, but this kind of a reasonable hedonism, you know, do it, but in a proper way, in a healthy way, don't go too far, and so on and so on. Like, when I flew two months ago across the Atlantic, I found in Hemispheres, the Journal of United Airlines, one of the most depressing texts that I can imagine. It was celebrating sex, but you know in what way? Like, sex is healthy. They claimed if you make love often, love is good for your heart, for blood circulation, it's good for your muscles, then even, uh, it becomes so obscene at the end where the text says, even kissing, deep French kissing, it's very good, it keeps the muscles strong, so when you will be old, the saliva will not be dropping for it. <laughs> It's nightmare, it's nightmare, this type of stuff. So, okay, let me go on here. Uh, 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 what I am saying here, and here I locate myself into the uh, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition now, no? What I'm saying is that uh, this is now referring to these sacred experiences of, like, uh, uh, like Project X, of this collective, transgressive, orgiastic violence, whatever. <laughs> uh, the deepest insight already in Jewish tradition is that, uh, is that this is what Lacan would have put it, the living God, the God of the real, which is extremely, this experience of sacred as this kind of a pagan, total violence, sacred orgy. This is what the Jewish tradition tries to keep at a certain distance, no? Which is why Jewish God, in a way, is a, is a dead God. Here, I agree, although otherwise I'm very opposed to him, with Emmanuel Levinas, who says somewhere something pretty surprising and shocking. He says that the ultimate addressee of the biblical commandment, don't kill, is... God himself. You know, uh, uh, in 
other words, the whole of Judaism should be read as a temptation to not to come too close to God or not to allow God to come too close for us. And Levidas provides, because then it's murderous violence. For example, uh, you know in it's from Exodus 4, 24 to 26, the scene which grounds uh, circumcision. You remember how brutally Moses is in a tent with his wife and simply God as an anonymous dark stranger enters and wants to kill Moses. And then the wife of Moses quickly cuts the skin of the son to protect her. But this idea that when God comes too close, it's it's brutality, which is why I think, uh, in what sense do I mean this? One of the commonplaces with which I totally disagree is that uh, Auschwitz means the dead, the death of God. Like, you know, the usual logic. How could God have uh, allowed something like this to happen? But uh, I claim, here I agree with Habermas, who says somewhere that it's much more ambiguous when you have a truly terrifying event like Auschwitz, and we can give other examples, of course from Congo to Gulag or whatever. Uh, there is something obscene in claiming, oh, this is just human evil, human causality. The evil is so terrifying that we cannot but call it divine. And divine here means simply the excessive sublime strength of it. So in other words, I don't agree with a famous book, I forgot the author, of on Holocaust, where the title of the book is God Died in Auschwitz. No, I claim God, but God of the real, this murderous, absolutely destroying God, he came alive in Auschwitz. And the problem is how to keep, how to keep this God at a distance. Here, Judaism has a wonderful solution. I quoted it a couple of times. I hope you know it. There are in Babylonian Talmud and in some other parts, there is a story which is repeated a couple of times, which is, I think, an absolutely wonderful theological story. It will sound as a joke, but I checked with my Jewish friends. This is Talmud, sacred text. It's basically uh, referring to one of your compatriots, uh, Marshall McLuhan. It's the Marshall McLuhan moment in any hall, you remember. Two guys, uh, 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 Woody Allen and another, fighting about McLuhan's theory, and then what all of us dream happens. McLuhan comes and says to Woody Allen, you are right, that guy is totally idiot. <laughs> it's literally the same scene. To distinguish, this is the story from Talmud, to distinguish rabbis debate a theological point. And the one who is losing the debate says, wait a minute, let's call Jehovah, God, to come and decide. And Jehovah comes. Old man comes there, and then the other, the winning in the debate, Rabbi, starts to shout, and God, basically, he tells God, you did your job. You didn't do a very good job. The universe is not perfect, but you did your job. Now your time is out. 
leave us intelligent people to debate what you did. You don't have anything to say here. And that's the beauty uh, uh, that uh, God's reaction is, oh my God, you are right, and God runs away. I mean, it's, I know this story is often used in a not proper way, signaling that Jews are by natural demo nature democratic, that this is the origin of democracy or whatever, no? But it's nonetheless a, a wonderful story where, again, the point is how to keep God at a, how to keep God at a distance. Let me now, uh, uh, so this would be one dimension which I claim will be and is returning more and more violently in our, uh, violently in our experience. This uh, obscene domain of the sacred, which we don't want to acknowledge it, but I think it's crucial to acknowledge it. If you look for, for the experience of sacred today, you find it in Project X more than in uh, religions and so on. But again, it doesn't mean that I like Project X. It means that uh, I don't think that there is something automatically, ethically noble in the experience of of the sacred, as already in antiquity they knew it, you know, like, let me mention the best known example, Euripides, Bacantes wrote, you know, that game where you have also an explosion of murderous violence of women. Now, I think this theory is not necessarily anti-feminist. I was always very suspicious of the attempts to ground feminism in any kind of feminine divinity, great mother, or whatever. I think, if anything, it's the opposite, that usually the price for this elevation of Mother Earth or whatever goddess is usually paid by, paid by real women. Like I remember years ago, I read the description of some, I think, New Guinea, I'm not sure where, tribe, which was apparently very feminist in the sense that the goddess, the supreme god was a goddess and even, to be primitive, the way their village was structured, the central temple had a kind of a vague vagina forum and around where the house is. There was only one problem, of course. Actual women of their pride were prohibited to enter that vagina. Only men could enter it and so on. So what I want to say, I want to give you here another example of today's ideology. It's really a terrifying one. Uh, North Korea. We don't trust the media. No, no, don't be afraid. I'm not saying it's really a great democratic regime or what, no. I'm saying is that it's, there was a book recently published, a little bit naive is the book, but it's interesting because it does nonetheless, it's a correct report, I think, on the, of the state of things, something that, you know, the usual thing we read about North Korea is that that the regime can survive because of this old Confucian ethics, uh, paternal authority, obedience, and so on and so on. No, this book, I think, conclusively demonstrates that this is totally false. The idea is that this guy did something interesting. He really 
how he succeeded years ago. He was allowed to stay there. Now, of course, he cannot enter North Korea anymore. He looked at not international North Korean propaganda, but at what, or rather, how Korean propaganda works at the local level for their own people. What's the message there? And he discovered some <coughs> very weird things. That first, the central metaphor for the party and the leader is mother, not father. He claims that it's simple mistranslation where it's translated like uh, Kim, Kim Jong-il or whatever, the father of the nation and so on. No, the term used in Korean, so the book claims, it's, it's the head of the family, but usually in everyday language it means mother. And then this book has some wonderful obscene details about how this works. For example, it's really a wonderful proof. This book takes the latest edition of North Korean Dictionary, Dictionary of North Korean Language, and looks at two entries, mother, father. The entry of, for mother is over one page. It begins with mother, first meaning, the biological mother who gives birth to a child, then mother as the family who takes care of the children, object of love, blah, blah. Then, of course, the third meaning, mother, in the sense of a social force which takes care of all the people, like the example here is Korean Workers' Party is the mother, like mother to Korean people and all that. It's over one page. Then you look at the entry, father. It's one sentence. Father is the partner of the mother. And then he goes on and looks at official songs of party songs and claims that the most popular official party song, it's extremely obscene if you read it, is a song celebrating the party as mother and all the time openly mentioning mother's breasts like, oh, uh, oh, Korean Workers' Party, our mother, we suck all that we need food, love from your breasts. We will never abandon your breasts. We will always cling to your breasts. It's pure obscenity and so on. Then uh, this goes even further. Did you notice if you saw some of these official photos of Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, how the official photos... Don't try to, you know, that Stalinists were specialists in, how do you call it, retouche, changing the photo to make leader look younger. That uh, first they all have a stomach and clear feminine features. Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung, the father and the crazy son. Uh, now it's interesting what is now happening. This is a very strange move that all of a sudden the leader is publicly married, the third one now, you know, they show, because Kim Jong-il, they even claim it's a wonderful reading, how, uh, how, you remember, maybe you saw it sometimes in newspaper, the photo of Kim Jong-il, the second leader, how, his hair is like waving, and he has some kind of a plastic jacket, and, and he proves with other photos that he consciously imitates the image of ordinary Korean mother 
who has this cheap jacket, has to stand in line, take care of the family, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not playing any type of defense of patriarchal authority in the sense of, ah, uh, uh, you overthrow patriarchy, you get even worse, you know, like as if give uh, power to feminists and you end up in North Korea. No. <laughs> Men are still absolutely empowered there. My point is precisely that we must distinct, radically separate feminist issues, feminine emancipation from all this bullshit of society as a mother and so on and so on. This is why I did something that some people took for a little bit crazy. I claim that maybe the time is to more emphasize what already Freud did at some point, uh, the distinction woman-mother, that psychoanalysis does, absolutely does not claim what it's usually attributed to it. You know that mother is, uh, uh, that a woman doesn't have penis, so she gets a child who functions as a symbolic substitute, all that bullshit. No, that precisely uh, uh, authentic feminine subjectivity means Medea, to cut a long story short. No, I was always fascinated by Medea. I think far from being the horrible, destructive woman, whatever, Medea is my heroine. I think maybe the time has come to pass from, from Antigone to Medea. I'm a little bit tired of that uh, celebration of Antigone, whatever. No? Okay, but uh, let me go on. So again, uh, you know, uh, we, what I'm trying to tell you is this. Of course, a certain traditional patriarchal ideology, ideology is disintegrated. But what we are getting is not authentic emancipation, but we are getting one totalitarian version would have been North Korea, society as mother embodied. The other version would have been this new say, sense of sacredness and so on and so on. And I claim that uh, here the predominant version today, this is my prediction that the future lies with Buddhism, but I'm critical about it. It's not so much authentic Buddhism as a kind of a popular Western Buddhism. Now, I will just slowly recapitulate what I already said two days ago, but I will move further. Namely, I, I think that there are two reasons, at least, why Buddhism fits by Buddhism... I will not go into this, is it authentic or not. Of course, authentic Buddhism is something great, incredibly radical, and so on. What I mean, so yeah, okay, time. What I mean is something else. What I mean is that uh, we should ask this simple question. We are entering a new era, global capitalism, and so on, and it's a very traditional Marxist question. What type of spirituality, self-experience, ideological self-understanding fits perfectly today's capitalism. I think that Buddhism can do the job much better than Christianity. First, because let's put it very simply. On the one hand, what defines today's universe is the crazy global capitalist dynamics. 
end, as many people pointed out, uh, it is uh, much, uh, it's, uh, you know, I was always fascinated when you read this propaganda leaflets, whatever, which try to convince you to take a course in transcendental meditation, whatever. How the message is always a double message. The first message is, we live in a crazy world. We crave for material goods and so on. This is a false world. We are losing our true self. So don't we need time to simply step out of this crazy dance of hyperactivity to find simple inner truth, inner peace, and so on and so on. But always, always, then you find a second paragraph, which is much more cynical, and which tells you something like, in this way, with a proper inner peace and distance, you will function even better on the market, you know. <laughs> it, always. You know who began this? It's not even us in the West. I read somewhere that after the end of the World War II, Japanese defeat, Suzuki established, the same Suzuki, the first business, the first Zen course for businessmen in Tokyo in '47. This idea that if you are minimally enlightened, like to be vulgar, aware that the reality we confront is not the substantial real reality, that the ultimate truth is the void, you arrive at this through this meditative distance and so on and so on, that precisely by not, the idea is the following one, if you take crazy this game of uh, Imagine being a stockbroker or whatever, speculating with futures and hedge funds, whatever. I mean, if you take this game seriously, you get crazy. It's so dynamic, you know, like a rumor starts, can ruin the whole industry, whatever. And the idea is that the only way to survive it, if you learn some kind of inner distance, inner peace and so on, telling yourself, but I'm not really there. I quite, as I put it in one of my books, I think that we all know Max Weber's classical book, you know, the, the Protestant ethics and the spirit of capitalism. I think that if Weber were to be alive today, he would have written a book, something like Taoist ethics and the spirit of global capitalism. It fits much better. Uh, uh, do you know that I quoted at the very end, I'm not sure, I think it's of my ticklish subject, but I'm not sure a wonderful documentary where you have some sociologists like Saskia Sassen and some Tibetan Buddhists, and they claim that the only way to account ontologically for the crazy experience of reality, which is proper to today's capitalism, this total fragility, like remember 2008, the, you know, you think you live in a stable world, all, you know, this fragility, all of a sudden reality, we know it can dissolve and so on, is to accept some kind of Buddhist ontology of there is no substantial reality, just phenomena, dancing, and so on and so on. So this is, I think, uh, the first reason why, uh, uh, why Buddhism can function much better than Western Christian traditions in enabling us to survive at everyday level, survive through a distance, the, the, this crazy dynamic logic of global capitalism. The second thing, 
I think, is precisely the great revolution that we are approaching, the uh, biogenetic revolution. I also mentioned this two days ago. What fascinates me is that I really think that maybe even the very definition of being human will change. Because what does it mean now for us to be human? Minimally. It means I'm a thinking being, among other things. No, it means I'm in here, reality is out there, I can think whatever I want, and so on. And as we all know, the latest result of brain sciences, but also practices and so on, is that slowly, slowly, we are not yet there, but this fundamental divide between me, my inside and outside is breaking down in both directions. You know how from time to time you get all these stories about how they can wire your brain so that you can move objects directly. You, for example, you have wheelchairs for crippled people where you don't even need that Stephen Hawking's finger. You know, you just think strongly forward that because the chair moves, because again, it's very simple. They already can decode your very elementary orders to your muscles, and they simply read them and directly transmit them to the machine. The problem is rather, for me, uh, that it goes also the other way around, from inside, outside. That is to say, uh, I was quite shocked, and I spoke with some people connected with it, and they told me it's not a joke, namely, that it's quite serious. You can check it on... Uh, you can uh, uh, check it on. Uh, uh, you can check it on. Uh, uh, sorry, on on the net. Namely, what did you hear about? Uh, did you hear about DARPA project? DARPA means Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's uh, in United States. Uh, uh, big, huge military agency supporting neuroscientific research. And among other things, it's not a joke, they are now doing something they call uh, 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 narrative analysis. And uh, I read their program. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty terrifying. They are not yet there, but the very project is strange. The idea is this one. First, it reads like some kind of structural analysis. They claim how to prevent terrorist attacks. We have to see how the mind of terrorist works. So at the first level is simply, let's analyze all the discursive rhetorical strategies. How, do you, how does ideology create a terrorist? What short cuts, short circuits, rather in their reasoning, does it, and so on. Then comes the real thing. They try to identify parts of the brain which are active in these processes, when you assume a fanatical belief, and so on. And the idea, they say it openly, is that we will be able to influence someone to change his or her beliefs, not by arguing with him, either even brainwashing him, but through direct 
biogenetic intervention. And I think this is quite a new perspective, admitted that it's no longer like it's no longer even ideological struggle. Like you are a terrorist. I will not try to reason with you. You are wrong. I will not try even to brainwash you, torture you. I will simply ask myself at the biological level, what goes on in your mind? And intervene there. I mean, okay, again, it's still not yet developed, but uh, things are developing here fast. So what I'm saying is that how, how to accept this? That, namely, that this fundamental divide between subject-object, my inner life, outer life. You know that all, even all cognitivists admit that, at least from our experience, there is a gap here. On the one hand, you look at the brain, stupid piece of meat, and so on. How you make a jump from there to your inner experience. They're trying to do it. At some elementary level, they already uh, can do it. So, again, the problem is, how do we react to this? The problem is, if we accept this, that science and technology will succeed relatively soon in this radical self-objectivization, that our thinking processes, emotional reactions, and so on, will become something which we will be able to identify as neuronal processes in your brain and then to influence it directly like that. Uh, there are, as I already said two days ago, there are, the way I see, three, four main reactions to this. One is that we, in our immediate self-experience, are condemned eternally to live in this illusion that we are free agents and so on. You know, that, that, uh, that we are wired biologically, evolutionary, to experience ourselves as free, responsible agents. So in other words, there is an irreducible cognitive gap between scientific truth, which tells us that there is no free will and so on. By the way, I, I'm not saying this is true. I don't agree with this. And it's very interesting. Do you know the guy? You should read him interesting. Called Benjamin Libet. It's a neuroscientist from Berkeley, I think, who uh, he already some 10 years or 20 years ago uh, proposed and did the experiment which is usually referred to as the ultimate experiment demonstrating that there is not free will. But interestingly enough, he himself disagrees with this reading. He claims, no, no, the experiment is the famous one, you know, to simplify to the utmost. You are asked to do some elementary gesture, like pick up this pen and move it here or there, whatever. Just to do it immediately. You decide, you do it. He then, of course, wires, put sensors on you, blah, blah. And what he did prove is that a split of a second before you decide, your neurons already know it. In other words, this allegedly proves that uh, when you do something freely, in the sense of you just on the spot decide it, you don't really decide 
you just become aware of a process which objectively is already going on before. And they are even further developing this today. For example, they have proven absolutely conclusively, I like this, that when you go to a store to buy a car and are nervous, sweating, what to buy and so on, they can tell you 10 minutes before even that you're, you've already decided, seven to 10 minutes before and so on. So, okay, what's so interesting is that Benjamin Libet uh, rejects this reading. She claims that, yes, it's a very Hegelian argument, I like it. His answer is that, yes, this happens with our positive decisions, but that in that split of a second, when my neurons decide, and I don't yet know it, I can block it. That our freedom is originally a freedom to say no. That our freedom is not to freely decide for something, but just for no reason at all to sabotage. Okay, this is a complicated debate. What I wanted to say is that uh, if we accept it, which I don't, this idea that we are just wired mechanisms, our free will is an illusion, the first attitude, this is the majority standard opinion, is to accept the gap. To say, okay, we are forever condemned to live in illusion because we are wired to it. We experience ourselves as free. Okay, then we can give a more philosophical twist to this. I will not go into it, the Habermasian answer. They have great debates in Germany. Habermas tries to play more of a, let's call it, a transcendental game here. He claims that even if the result of our scientific research is we are not free, we are neuronal mechanisms. How did we reach this result? Through scientific analysis, scientific reasoning, arguing, which precisely presupposes that we are free-thinking beings. So the idea is that even when you prove that you are not free, the space for this very proof is sustained by the space of reasoning and that you cannot close the circle here, that's another point. Okay, then we have another tendency, uh, for example, uh, Patricia and uh, Paul Churchland, who claim, but it's utopia, I don't think it works, who claim that, no, there is nothing really eternal biological in our spontaneous self-perception as free agents. They claim, no, it is possible to change our in the same way as, for example, I don't know, when something strikes, today we no longer experience it as divine intervention and so on, that we can imagine a society where people fully integrate, assume scientific results, we are not free beings and so on and so on, and it will be, they claim, they try to pass, to give it a positive twist, that it will be a much more tolerant society, less, uh, 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 less moralistic, less severe punishment, and so on, simply to take this into account. But then my hero here, okay, not hero, but the most interesting guy I claim is the German guy Thomas Metzinger in his wonderful big fat book, uh, uh, Being No One, where he tries he, first, he accepts this gap. He says that if you look at cognitivist theories, which totally naturalize our mind, he says that we can know it rationally, 
But we cannot really believe in it. We cannot really accept it. There is a gap here. But he provides an exception, again, Buddhism. He claims that, you see the parallel, that if you go to the end in Buddhist enlightenment, and if you reach uh, enlightenment, nirvana, where you get the point that you have no free, uh, that you are not a free agent, you are not a substantial self, and so on, all that, there is the only point where you do reach a subjective position which is compatible with the latest scientific results. It's a very beautiful reading. But as always, I like to bring uh, bad news. As always, I claim there are problems here. So let me conclude just a little bit with where do I see problems here. Uh, 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 first, Buddhism is concerned with solving the problem of suffering. So the first axiom is always, we don't want to suffer. Well, here already I have problems. I think if there is a point of psychoanalysis, it's that uh, we want to suffer. And it's irreducible. And uh, I, I think that uh, I, I, my first association here is, you know, a typical, since we are here, cinema lovers, film noir scene. You know, the typical scene is like, uh, kind of, I don't know who, Robert Mitchum, Humphrey Bogart guy, falls for an evil femme fatale, and at the end, he loses everything, he's totally ruined, and then somebody asks him, now you know it, it was ruin. So sad that you didn't know this before to avoid it. And his answer, the hero's answer is always, uh, uh, is always, no, it was worth. Even if I were to know that it will end in ruined, it, it was worth doing it. This idea of it's a catastrophe, but I'm ready to do it again. So what I want to say is that uh, uh, my first point is that Buddhism is here way too optimistic in a way in this belief, you know, that all living beings want to get rid of suffering and so on, I doubt it. Second point, uh, uh, I think one of the mystifications of our Western perception of Buddhism is that we identify too much with meditation. In a very good book on reality of Buddhism, I read, it's very interesting that in countries like Thailand, blah, blah, Burma, where uh, Myanmar now, where Buddhism is really a way of life. Only a tiny minority meditates. It's not so much, meditation is more an ideal. It's like to remind you that it is possible to reach, but for a large majority of people, being a Buddhist simply means don't cause too much suffering and so on, all that stuff, all that stuff. Uh, okay, but let's go on now <coughs> where I see uh, a problem with, uh, where I see a problem with uh, Buddhism. Again, it's what I already mentioned. Buddhism begins with suffering. So then you slowly train yourself ethically and so on. At the end, you step out of this wheel of desire. You are no longer controlled by karma. Your Acts no longer leave traces, you don't hurt other people, and so on and so on. Here, I have a couple of problems, and 
okay, I don't have time to go now in detail in them, but I had big debates with Buddhists who, at least, maybe they pretend that this, I don't know, considered to me that there is a problem here. Namely, did you notice this radical ambiguity in Buddhism? How, when they talk about reaching enlightenment, they oscillate between two extremes. On the one hand, the idea is enlightenment is simply a radical shift in your self-experience. Enlightenment doesn't mean anything changes in the world. It means just you radically shift your attitude. You no longer believe that you are a substantial agent, free will, and so on. You know, just this. You accept the void. On the other hand, you have a much more radical tendency that living as such is suffering and that basically that's the idea of bodhisattva, the Buddhist saint, who refuses to enter nirvana, but although he entered nirvana, he comes back to our illusory reality, he postpones his own salvation till all living sentient beings will be saved and so on and so on. I think if you ask me, the origin of all the problems with Buddhism is bodhisattva this very noble, apparently, idea of I could be there, could have been there in nirvana, but I have such loving sympathy for the suffering of all living beings that I came back so that only we all together should join it. The problem here is, uh, I think here already the battle is lost, because, you know, authentic Buddhism for me, me that means that in nirvana you don't go somewhere else. You stay fully here. And you can even be active as such. Uh, for an authentic radical Buddhist, you can, when you are in nirvana, you should forget, this is already, I think, a falsification. This idea that in nirvana you are somewhere there in a trance. No, you are here with all the people just with a different attitude, but you can be fully active here. Now, the problem, of course, is if you accept this position, what does it mean ethically? Again, I claim uh, there is, you know, the problem that I already approached, there is no guarantee that horrible thing cannot happen. Like, this was a big shock of me. I read two, three books on if there is a nightmare of a human person, this is Pol Pot. You remember the leader of Khmer Rouge in Kampuchea, Cambodia. Well, all descriptions agree that there was even a myth within the Khmer Rouge that he reached the highest enlightenment. He was an incredibly gentle, soft person, always inner peace, and so on and so on. So what I'm uh, uh, trying to say here, again, what I'm trying to say is that uh, uh, there is nothing which prevents you from reaching inner enlightenment and go on doing horrible uh, things. Now you will say compassion, but it's not the basic Buddhist attitude, that of compassion. Compassion with all suffering beings and so on and so on. But let me assure you, this problem was solved long ago. 
with the wonderful notion of compassionate war, you know, like you can also do, you can do all the killing, but with compassion and so on and so on. Then you have another problem here, which I think makes it even more, uh, what uh, Buddhists, many Buddhists admit that you can reach something like nirvana also through biochemical means with simple chemical intervention. You don't need to go through all the meditation, blah, blah, blah. So uh, the problem is, doesn't this ruin then the undermine the ethical status of meditation? That is to say, is there a distinction between, let's say, real enlightenment where you meditated, worked, hardly to reach it, and simply taking a pill and finding yourself in a blessed state. Owen Flanagan, a cognitivist who is also close to Buddhism, proposed what he calls here a normative exclusion cause. I quote him, cases where happiness, happiness in the sense of Buddhist enlightenment, is gained by magic pills or is due to false belief, do not count because the allegedly happy person must be involved in cultivating her own virtue and happiness. Happy states born of delusion are undeserved. My point is why? Why, if, as he admits it, it's exactly the same inner state. Okay, then uh, the next, uh, <coughs> uh, sorry, uh, so again, uh, because of all this, my, the only, uh, I ask here is the quote from Suzuki, if you don't believe me. It is really not he, the killer, but the sword itself that does the killing. He, the killer, had no desire to harm, to do harm to anybody, but the enemy appears and makes himself a victim. It is as though the sword performs automatically its function of justice, which is the function of mercy. Wonderful description of killing, and so on and so on. So, uh, you know what I'm trying to say here? Now, really, to conclude, I was too long. Two things. First, uh, uh, don't misunderstand me. I am not dismissing Buddhism in any way. It's an absolutely authentic experience. I just claim it doesn't have a necessary immanent, let's call it moral or whatever, content. Let's not cheat here. It's, as Suzuki said, a technique of achieving inner peace. You can do all the torturing you want. I don't believe. And it's quite interesting to read. For example, I have a book on Tibetan ethics, sorry, Tibetan legal system, where it describes in what wonderful way, wonderful in a terrifying sense, in what wonderful way Although they did not do the killing, they nonetheless did it. For example, in, in traditional Tibetan justice, of course, you don't do the killing, life is sacred. But they whipped a criminal and chained him in winter to a tree outside, so he wrote, and so on and so on. You can do it. So what I want to say is that my lesson would be just a double. First, let's accept the gap. Inner Buddhist peace meditation is a great thing, but it's not the answer. 
I think we should, again, maintain a minimal gap between inner authenticity and, let's call it, ethics of uh, acting together with other people and so on and so on. My, uh, uh, my second conclusion here would have been that uh, I am, that to locate what really, I'm sorry, I'm talking in mega generalities now, what really divides East from West, if I may use these terms, probably in a wrong way, but nonetheless, is that what nonetheless I find attractive in Western tradition, it's terribly politically incorrect what I'm saying now, it's that uh, in contrast to this idea, don't get involved, remain, maintain an inner distance, isn't the entire Western ethics, starting with Plato, precisely ethic of, an ethics of falling into, opening yourself to an encounter, like falling in love. Our Western love is not this peaceful Buddha smile. It's out there, something, and you fall fully into it. You know, this idea of fall, uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, my favorite Catholic theologist, although I'm totally an atheist, of course, puts this nicely when he says that in all other religions, you have a fall, like man falls from God. Only in Christianity, God himself falls into the world incarnation and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that... Uh, uh, what I, what I am tempted to do here, but even here, I'm not sure if maybe some Buddhisms can do it. It's a very tricky point. It's, uh, you know, at least I'm totally opposed to Star Wars Buddhism. I will stop immediately. To Star Wars Buddhism, you know, which is, you know, how, how Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader by getting to identify too much love. No, I mean... Uh, my friend Kojin Karatani, a Japanese leftist, told me that there is nonetheless a Buddhist tradition which says, no, nirvana does not mean maintain inner distance. Nirvana means fall fully into the world. In the sense of fall without reserve, you lose your ego, not by some inner meditation, but precisely you lose your ego by falling through, falling radically into the world, accepting fully the world. And even, okay, I should maybe have stopped here, but my basic message again would have been that, uh, 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 that maybe here there is an irreducible ethical line of division of how I'm tempted to claim that what we need precisely today, when a kind of a false Buddhism is becoming generally accepted ontology, is precisely to, to, to advocate the fall. Not wise distance, not like engage yourself fully, step out of yourself, fall into it. I think this is, for me, the ethics that we need today. I'm very sorry if I was too long and I improvise it because this is part of the work in progress, but I am very grateful for your incredible patience. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
You said the left needs new master signifiers. So just going back to what you were talking about with poetry and how poetry yeah. sort of animates totalitarianism, is that really what the left needs? So I'm maybe thinking about like what would an example be like Phil Ox, you know, during the 60s and 70s, he thought we needed someone who is both Che Guevara and Elvis Presley. Is, is this something that you're kind of thinking that, you know, how poetry kind of leads to no, animating your point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, master signifiers? No, first, let me be clear. Not every poetry. I mean, I'm definitely not saying that I don't know Paul Celan leads to totalitarianism or what. Uh, all I'm saying is uh, this, that what I mean by master signifier is, uh, again, uh, I don't like this ecstatic left where, you know, we are all out there together and so on and so on in ecstatic moments of freedom. What I'm obsessed with, and this I mean with master signifier, is, but what happens the day after? Are we strong enough to impose a new order? Like, what will the new order be? I mean, for me, the true value of a revolution is not those ecstatic moments where there is one million people on the square. That's easy to do. What interests me is what happens the day after. Because, you know, at some point, things, as we put it, return to normal. Not functioning. And how will the changes be felt there? And uh, this is all I mean with the master signifier. Master signifier is here simply the name for a new for a new order, if you want it like this, you know. Like, uh, and here, again, I, I see a big problem. It's as if even, uh, like, uh, it's, the problem for me, it's, of course, people always tell me, but you ask too much. We cannot now give a detailed blueprint of what new society we want. But I'm not talking about this. I'm even... I'm talking much more fundamentally about the basic blueprint of what are we striving for. And I find already here a lack of elementary, like, what do we want? Do we still want capitalism, but just, you know, with a more human face, kind of Keynesian welfare state capitalism? Do we want, I don't know, uh, a stronger state? Do we want just local communities to... It's... Uh, it's pretty frustrating, this. And this is not just an abstract problem. For example, it was a clear problem in Greece when Syriza, the radical left party, almost won the election. I was, it was incredible. I was asking them. I met the guy, Tsipras, the leader. Okay, if you win, what will you do? Apart from these negative gestures, like reject uh, austerity measures and so on. What will you do? Will you, like, nationalize, not nationalize? And it's, uh, it's pretty frustrating at this level. And I don't think, because, the, again, the answer I get is I want too much. We cannot talk about this now. Okay, but I think we should. Because exactly in Greece and in some other countries, you know, uh, we cannot say, oh, there is time, we will see when we come there. No, we have to think now about possible alternatives and so on. And I'm here even a pretty tough guy. Like, I think that the thing that we should abandon, this is very evil what I will say now, is this the true secret dream of the 20th century left. 
neither Stalinist communism nor social democracy, but this idea of non-representative direct democracy in local communities where, you know, transparent, non-representative. This works at the local level, but in order for this to work, to work at the local level, you have to have a very efficient global organization. How will you do that? And so on. Here I find such a lack of even imagination, like take the big hit, Negri Hart. At the end, when they approach this problem of both first two big books, that is to say, empire and multitude, all of a sudden, San Francisco is quoted and you get some kind of a mystical vision, you know. The way I see it is that the question, I don't like this, all this Deleuzean micro-local metaphorics of where the enemy is the big, smaller, whatever organization and this uh, local networks and so on. No, I think we will have to reinvent precisely large global organizations, how to do that, and so on and so on. I'm not a total pessimist here. I think that one reason to act is, you know, when people tell us, but you cannot really change it. My answer is clear. My answer is, but things are already changing. Are we aware how quickly we are leaving behind this even standard bourgeois progressive capitalism? If we allow things to go on the way they are going on now. I think in about 10, 15 years, maximum 20, we will live in some kind of new authoritarian world which we will not even recognize and so on. Even going towards the, so the new idea of the human, the old idea of human, of human subjectivity is disintegrating yeah, yeah, and going yeah, towards Yeah, that. yeah, that's my point here. Yes, that my point is not to paint some dark picture. We will be neuronal automata and so on, but it's an open field of a camp, we have to confront the problem. Yeah. What I don't agree is, for example, the Habermasian solution, which is basically a very conservative solution. No wonder that Habermas co-wrote a book, not really co-wrote, they just published together texts, with whom, my God, with Ratzinger, today's Pope. Yeah. And the, the, his, Habermas's solution is a negative gesture. It's saying, since it's dangerous to play with our brain, since it... Uh, limits our freedom, we should set up a limit and we should not do it. And here it may interest you, like I had a big debate with some bishops even in, in Munich or Vienna, I forgot, years ago, and I asked them, you remember, now I'm referring to this standard Catholic argument, we shouldn't mess with our brain, I mean, do this, all these biogenetic psycho effects, because in this way we lose our responsibility and freedom. Man is not just a machine, man has an eternal soul. But I also always have here an absolutely naive counter question. If you, not you, you, but if you are and Catholic, whatever, Christian, you believe that you have an eternal soul. Isn't it that then the logical answer would have been, I don't care, do whatever you want with my brain. You cannot touch my eternal soul. If they believe that we have an eternal soul, why then are they so afraid of me, if I'm an evil scientist, messing with your brain? Do you know, incidentally, that there is one, the only good Christian answer that I got here. It's a wonderful one. It's the uh, radio apparatus answer. They claim it's a nice way out. That think about our brain as a radio receiver. 
we do have an eternal soul, but our brain is tuned, like tuned to the good radio station to receive message from the soul. If we play through biogenetics with our brain, we will mess it up. It will no longer be able to. I don't think it works. But you see my point. I think we have to accept the, the challenge here. I mean, I'm just, uh, otherwise it will be horrible. We will have new and new uh, revolts like we have them now, uh, you know, here in uh, Greece, Europe, whatever. And, but then the result will be nothing, just more and more frustration. Okay, so you've already killed me off about four or five times this weekend. This is yeah. the, the reason you why. I'm gonna you, I'm gonna ah, I know what you're you longing off. for. When you're already dead down, you know, in typical Hollywood fight, when... Yeah the bad guy wins. When back. the guy is already down, you kick him the last time into the head, you know. So I have, I have to do that. We have another question over yeah. here. Um, tying uh, last night's screening into yeah. today's talk, uh, I was just wondering if you were aware of, uh, you talk about David Lynch a lot. I was wondering if yeah. you were aware of his whole engagement with transcendental... Unfortunately, I am, yes. The same... Uh, Howard Stern also practices it. And I didn't know about Howard Stern, but <laughs> yeah. I know about... I know about the man, his idea is that if you... I think if you get a certain... It's almost like what Stalin is called the jump from quantity to quality. That if you get a, great, a large number of people meditating together, it must be at least 10,000, then it will unleash some energy which... and so on and so on, you know. I know, but uh, it's... Uh, Like, uh, what surprised me at a different level is how often David Lynch, David Lynch, even he really must be some kind of unconscious genius who really doesn't know how he does it. For example, what is for me the absolutely supreme, most painful scene from Wild at Heart? You remember that traumatic scene where uh, Willem Dafoe, who plays Bobby Peru, the bad guy, harasses Laura Dern, you know, not physically, but just intrusive, like close to her and with that disgusting mouth whispering to her, say fuck me, say fuck me, say fuck me. You remember what then happens? Finally terrorized, she says, fuck me, and you know, it's a, such a vulgar, you know what he does then? He steps back and says, oh, thanks for the offer, but not today, I'm not in the mood, maybe another day, thanks. The point is that precisely by treating it, uh, Precisely by not raping her, paradoxically, she humiliates her even more. And okay, in a book, Lynch on Lynch, she is asked, how did you come to this scene? And she gives a totally stupid, like, oh, it seems a good line to say, I don't know what you mean. She really doesn't know what he is doing, I mean, no? <laughs> so, uh, but this is often the case with artists. I'm not saying... Let me be very careful here. I am not saying we had a good Lynch doing movies and a bad Lynch involved in all their Buddhist stuff and so on. Maybe somehow, and we often have with great art this paradox, that somehow in order to do a good product, you need the most stupid or naive uh, uh, ideology. Things are very paradoxical here. Often, and this is what always interests me, how... Illusions are sometimes necessary, even stupid illusions, no? But yes, I, I, I am aware of that, yes. 
But Lynch is still not my greatest design. Although, you know, I know even much darker things about Lynch. I don't know if it's true, but a friend from California told me that. When he was, a couple of years ago, David Lynch asked about unemployed people. No, he said, I would cut off all the unemployed. These are just lazy people who don't know like it's... Uh, I even prefer not to talk about his direct politics. So uh, there's no democracy here. I have the, the final say. Uh, we have one last question uh, on the side here. Please. Uh, yeah, uh, I was fascinated about what you were saying when you were connecting subjectivity to void in a certain sense. And but it's the classical Hegelian. I'm not original. No, no, no. I know. Uh, this is Hegelian stuff. Precisely. But what I wanted to ask you was how you engage with the critique that would come out of Wittgenstein about a kind of Cartesian position and I want to ask you that precisely because some of these issues about biogenetics and the yeah. seeming disintegration of the category of the human, uh, some people could say that that sort of validates the critique of the Cartesian void, if you like. I, I just wanted to ask you how you engage with that position. Ah, it's a very nice question. I'm so sad we don't have time. You know what? Okay. I am <laughs> bluffing, but not totally bluffing. I know about... Wittgenstein. My answer would have been this one. I'm always looking for potential allies. Where, uh, that, uh, I don't think it's enough to distinguish two Wittgensteins. The early one, Tractatus, clear and this plurality of games, language games, the so-called Wittgenstein founder of so-called wrong terms. Or, I claim that when he approached the topic of, of uh, certitude and so on, there is another dimension there. He become aware that there he comes close to subjectivity, I claim. He became aware that, as it were, the, this plurality of language games and so on doesn't cover the entire field. What he evokes with the topic of Certainty is something much more radical, and there is a philosopher who claims who came close to this. You know, he I know he is personally half crazy, blah blah blah, but he was hailed when I was young as a genius, Saul Kripke. You know, his book, his claim to fame is uh, Naming and Necessity, it's an extraordinary book. But then he did Wittgenstein on Rules, where he goes precisely into this problem, which is no longer just late Wittgenstein, what I claim, saw that, again, the philosophical, that standard Wittgenstein of family of different language games is not enough. I claim a void appears there. As to Cartesian problem, I'm always a faithful Cartesian, because I claim that we should distinguish, first, every feminist should like Descartes. You know that Descartes is the father of feminism, literally. The first modern philosopher who fully developed feminism was a pupil of, I forgot his name, of Descartes, who claimed precisely cogito means cogito doesn't have sex and so on and so on. But uh, you know what my answer would have been here? Even a Buddhist answer, if you want, pro-Buddhist answer, that the mistake is at the very beginning of Descartes when he makes this fateful step from cogito ergo sum, which is a purely performative evental entity. Cogito is just a process of cogito, totally non-substantial. The step from here to res cogitans, to a thing which, thing which thinks, is illegitimate. So 
that Descartes I'm ready to criticize. But I think Descartes, uh, I'll put it in this way. I claim that anti-humanism begins with Descartes. In the theoretical, Renaissance is humanism. It's this celebrating the fullness of personality and so on. But the lesson of all radical modern philosophers, Descartes, Kant, Hegel, is no. Our, the wealth of our personality is just a mask. There is a void there. And this void, okay, it's a big problem how to combine this void with the Buddhist void. But at least here they are on the same side. So again, I think that in contrary to what sometimes Michel Foucault seems to claim and so on, I think that this transcendental tradition of modern philosophy is absolutely anti-humanist. It's not human being. The wealth of human being is the mask of a void. And here again, uh, even cognitivists I think would have accepted this, in the sense that I, as a Cartesian, I'm ready to sacrifice all content, my authentic emotions, whatever, whatever, all this can be. What I don't give away is the void itself. And it would be interesting to, I don't have time now, sorry, I talk too much, to, re, you know, all... I'm far from thinking that all cognitivists are stupid, if I put it in this way. There are many who are stupid, plainly stupid. Like, I'm sorry to tell you, Steven Pinker is plainly stupid, I think. He simplifies it so much, says stupidities, but already with Daniel Dennett, eh, eh, often he, you know, Dennett is stupid when he wants to do a big general image, like in Consciousness Explained, when he explains the origin of religion. But when Dennett uses specific example, makes points and so on, he can be very intelligent. So what I'm claiming is that intelligent cognitivists do things, for example, I read dozens of books. Uh, first report on that is in my parallax view of how all intelligent cognitivists try to locate the moment of self-consciousness as a moment of some kind of a circular short circuit, claiming that you have consciousness where you no longer have a simple line of causes and effects, but when uh, a cause is, as it were, retroactively posited by its own effect, there must be a kind of a causal circularity. And they describe it with very nice metaphorics, and so on. So again, my answer to you would have been that neither Wittgenstein nor cognitivists, especially cognitivists, uh, are not, Wittgenstein also, but I say especially cognitivists, because often the critics of cognitivism treat them as some idiots who thought, you know, we have a clear neuronal mechanism, we can explain everything. No, no, you can find true pearls there on theory. I'm far from playing this typically continental European game of dismissing cognitivism as naive and uh, unable to confront the true transcendental subjectivity and so on and so on. I take brain sciences and cognitivism very seriously. 
So I'm afraid uh, we're out of time at I'm this sorry. point. I'm sorry. I talk too much. I'm sorry. But I want again. I want to thank Slavoj for coming the entire weekend. It's been very wonderful having you here. I'm very honored to have you here, and I thank everybody also. For no, I'm grateful to you to be because you saw what I was doing today. I wasn't totally selling the old bullshit. I'm sorry if you were disappointed because I really tried to give you the first glimpse of work in progress, what I'm struggling with now. I'm tired of just repeating the old Lacanian points and so on. You know, I want really in very naive way to engage with all these and well, the work goes on. Thank you very much. I mean it sincerely. I'm not bluffing now. Thank you very much for your great patience here with me. Thank you very much.